We're only going to do an introduction this morning, um, and primarily um, give you an overview of the topics that we're going to be studying. And I can't remember the last time I did it, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, I might go a little bit more in depth this time around, but if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his hand, his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I do want to explain why we're going from the Gospel of John, which we just finished, to the book of Revelation. A lot of it has to do with in light of the circumstances that we, the world finds itself in. Uh, when we're through, and I'm not sure when that's going to be uh, with Revelation, then we'll go back to the book of Acts and we'll continue to make our way through uh, the New Testament. Uh, this morning we'll have an introduction to the book. Uh, we'll look a little bit of the writer who the Lord chose here. I'll be reading from Fox's Book of Martyrs about John when we, when we get to him. Um, and then answer the question why both mainline Protestant and Roman Catholic Church take an allegorical view or they spiritualize the book. Um, they're what we call amillennial. In other words, they have a figurative view rather than a literal view of the book of Revelation. Number three, the reason why they hold these views after Israel was destroyed in 70 AD. This is gonna be a milestone of why mainline denominations do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. And then I want to touch on how anti-Semitism plays into a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation. How Daniel and Revelation are tied together. And then I want to address um, a false teaching uh, that is in the church today. It's accepted um, by both mainline Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Uh, the theological term here that we use is simply called replacement theology. And I'm actually going to be spending quite a bit of time in our introduction uh, of that this morning. Now, the fact that Mary, I didn't know what her <laughs> prophecy update was going to be on and that she'd be quoting Hal Lindsey so much. But um, I'm going to quote the late great planet Earth because I remember reading it in the early 70s. Um, in 1970, the late great planet Earth was published, and many believed it would happen shortly. That was exactly 50 years ago. So now some 50 years later, here we are. The Bible is one-fifth prophecy, and one-third of prophecy pertains to the second coming of Jesus Christ. On November 1st, 1969, Hal Lindsey warned his readers to look for the following events. Now, mind you, 
This was 50 years ago. He said major denominations would be captured by those who reject the essential truth of the Bible and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Denominations would merge together and and ecumenicalism would become more prevalent as the historical truths of the Bible are discarded. We use the terminology today, the seeker-sensitive church or the seeker-sensitive movement. Ministers losing their power, along with their link to the supernatural, would resort to a social action gimmicks or programs, per se. Uh, Followers, especially young people, would flee the mainline churches in droves. Bible-believing Christians would be openly persecuted for their beliefs, sometimes even by so-called ministers of the gospel we would begin to see more movement toward a one-world religion, and I might add a one-world government. Jerusalem would become the focal point of world concern as the Muslim and Islamic would begin to fight in earnest over who owns it. We would see movement toward the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem by the Jews, the Middle East would become a constant source of tension in the world. Israel would become more prosperous. The Muslim-Israeli conflict become a constant world-threatening crisis. The U.S. would begin to lose its preeminent leadership position in the world. Europe would begin emerging as the most powerful economic force in the world. We would see Europe moving towards unification. The communist takeover of the world would be stopped abruptly. The political power and influence of the Pope would increase. I could have a lot to say about that in light of his um, world gathering with world leaders just recently in Dubai. People all over the world will be looking and yearning for a leader to bring them together. The worst famines the world has ever known would break out. Moral and social chaos in America would tear apart the fabric of our society and begin to destroy our economy. Drug addiction and abuse would escalate as problems in America and throughout the Western world. Crime, riots, unemployment, poverty, illiteracy, mental illness, and other social problems would increase at an un unprecedented rate. There would be more interest in an acceptance in Eastern religions, astrology, and witchcraft. And I have to stop and just beg the question, this was written 50 years ago, how in the world did hell know this? He wasn't a prophet, doesn't claim to be a prophet, but he is a student of Bible prophecy, and he could with great confidence make these statements only because he understands Bible prophecy, in particular the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Now, part of our background as we get into the book of Revelation is talking a little bit about um, who the Lord used as an author uh, to pen these events. I'm going to put on the screen uh, the island of Patmos 
And uh, John wrote the book of Revelation as it was given to him while he was there. That's the island. I've been there one time. And um, where it is, well, I'll show you on a map, a, a church of Turkey. So Turkey would be, you can see where the red spot is, that's the island of Patmos. And um, just to the east of it would be uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, all of the seven churches that are written about in chapters two and three are in the modern state of Turkey today, and that'll be when we get to chapters two and three. There are different views of the book, of interpretation of the book of Revelation. One view is that all prophecy in Revelation is already fulfilled, and uh, that happened between the struggle between the Jews and the early Christians and the conquest of Greece and Rome. So they're saying the book of Revelation is historical. Uh, We have a term for them. We call them preterist, and they believe that these, the book of Revelation, um, was all fulfilled during up to 70 AD. Then there's a historical view that prophecy is being progressively fulfilled by events in history since the days of the apostles, where we're going to have um, a different view on that because we see it yet all as yet uh, future, starting with chapter 6. Then there's a spiritual view, uh, the belief that the book speaks of a spiritual conflict between Jesus and the devil, between good and evil, some terms between light and darkness. And then there's a futuristic view, or the literal view. It holds to the literal meaning of the book, unless there's a clear reference to symbolism, and there's many, and that's why Daniel is gonna become such an important book in our study. Uh, Symbolism is used in Revelation. Now this view states that we are now in chapters one through three. And the bulk of the book is yet future. So the author, John, of course, is a brother of James. He was in business with Peter and Andrew and fishermen. Um, Actually, they were from Bethsaida, but they had their home in Capernaum. He was a fisherman in Galilee. John was part of the inner circle with Peter, James, and John. Um, The Lord gave... Gave James and John nicknames. I think he had a short wick. Uh, he called them Sons of Thunder. Um, he is responsible for writing, of course, the Gospel of John, which we just finished. And he also is responsible for First, Second, and Third John. And the Lord kept him alive um, to write the book of Revelation. The only original. Uh, disciple alive at this time. All the other disciples died martyrs' death, and their their deaths are recorded here in Fox's book of martyrs. Now, even though John was never martyred, I am going to read a paragraph uh, from Fox's book of martyrs about John, and I'm quoting: In this persecution, John the apostle. An evangelist was exiled by the said Domitian into Patmos, which we had on the screen earlier. 
And then after the death of Domitian, he being slain and his acts repealed by the Senate, John was released and he came to Ephesus in the year fourscore and 17 where he continued until the time of Trajan and there governed the church in Asia where he wrote his gospel and so lived till the year after the passion of the Lord threescore and eight which was the year of his age about 100. So John possibly made it as long and he died a natural death. He was never um, martyred. Some of the things that we're going to discover that I want to just touch on so that when we hear a number, I'm I'm moving on to uh, just numbers. Because if you go back to when John wrote his gospel, he decided to write um, around seven I am statements and seven miracles. And now as we get into his writing of the book of Revelation, numbers again are going to play a role. Um, I'll start with the number four. For the number of earthly things, the number of creation, signifies the earth with its four directions, uh, four living creatures in chapter four, the four winds in chapter seven, the four corners, um, the four divisions of time in chapter nine. Six represents the number of man, also evil, Uh, Satan, the Antichrist, and of course, if I think Mary alluded to it, if people don't know anything about the book of Revelation, they're at least familiar with 666, uh, the number of the Antichrist, also the number of man. Now seven is, again, uh, the most prominent number we're gonna run across as we make our way through the book of Revelation. It's the number of completion. Um, we have seven days in a week, and then you start over. You have seven uh, scales, uh, notes how to scale, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, and then you start over again um, with dos. And um, seven primary colors, and I could go on and on. But it's the number of completion, uh, the seven churches in chapters two and three, uh, the seven spirits, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars we'll be reading about, in chapter two, the seven lamps of fire, the seven seals, the seven horns, the seven eyes, the seven angels, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, seven thousands in chapter 10, the seven heads in chapter 12, seven crowns, seven last plagues, seven golden vials, the seven mountains, and the seven kings in chapter 17. Seven is um, by far and away the most prominent number used in the book of Revelation. Then there's the number 10, the number of the world's activities. The beast of chapter 13 and 17 had 10 horns and 10 crowns. Again, this will tie this together when we are studying um, the book of Daniel, primarily chapter two and seven. 10 is the number of political uh, responsibility. And the last number that I'll make mention of is the number 12 is also prominent in the book of Revelation. It's the number of final perfection 
of governments. The 12,000 of each tribe in chapter seven, again, there's a lot of misunderstanding that uh, we'll get sidetracked talking about anti-Semitism here. But beginning with chapter six, um, especially chapter seven, there's the ceiling of the 144,000. And each 12,000 from each tribe. So that'll be in chapter seven. But I want to point out that they're Jewish. We're not talking about Gentiles here or Jehovah Witnesses who claim they're the 144,000. There's the um, 12 stars. There's the 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. There's 12 angels in Revelation 21, the 12 tribes. The 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. The 12 apostles whose names are on the walls and the 12 pearly gates and the 12 fruits, Revelation 22, verse two. There are four categories of judgments that we're going to be studying uh, in the book of Revelation. We have, first of all, uh, the 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 judgment of the church. And that comes from first, if you're taking notes, first Peter chapter four, verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it's first at us, what will be the end of them that do not obey the gospel of God? The father has committed all judgment unto the son. So first category of judgment, we're talking about Hebrews chapter 12 here. And that is that God deals with us as sons And what father doesn't discipline his son? And so the second one is we have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And what we're going to notice as we go through the judgments as they escalate in intensity, starting with the seal judgments, we call the trumpet judgments the third judgments because they pertain to a third of the water, a third of the ocean, a third of all things that are green, We also call those the trumpet judgments. And then the bold judgments is the fullness of God's wrath uh, being poured out, and we call those the bold judgments. The church has been taken to heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. We'll deal with that in quite a bit of detail when we get to those chapters. Jesus then takes the sealed scrolled book and enters into heaven. Revelation 6 uh, through 18 is the bulk of the book. It is a seven-year period of time. It contains the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments. And we, we have a lot of different names for this. But Daniel's 70th week, Mary made uh, alluded to it. But my favorite, because again, we're talking about Israel here, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. It doesn't mean that people won't be saved during this time. I believe there'll be a great revival because of the two witnesses. But the time of Jacob's trouble, it's also called the great indignation. It's called the wrath of the lamb. Um, But it's primarily known as Daniel's 70th week. And we refer to it as um, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus talking about it, Matthew 24, said that there has never been a time like it nor will there ever be a time like it again. So much for the argument of the preterist to say all this was fulfilled 
between 70 AD and Christ's ministry. There's been all kinds of things that have been worse since then, including the Holocaust. So you can just mark that one off very, very easily. It doesn't stand up to scripture. So we find that um, um, the millennial judgment by Christ, that's when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation. We call it the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll be getting into. The kingdom age is finally established that was promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus rules and reigns. We will rule and reign with him, we'll learn in a couple of weeks, uh, with a rod of iron for 1,000 years. The final judgment, after the 1,000 years, here's the, um, I said there's four major judgments, this is the third one. Um, the fourth one, after the 1,000 years, all those who died in their sins will be resurrected and judged by their works. There are nine separate judgments in the book of Revelation. The church, Revelation 2 and 3. Um, then the rebellion of the nations, and that is the main part of the book um, from chapter uh, um, 6 to 16. Earth, religious, and economic systems, chapter 17 and 18. Uh, one of the main things that's going on behind the scenes that um, we'll spend time with with the pandemic and what's really behind it and how sinister it is. And I believe um, that it, it was intentionally perpetrated. And I'll give my evidence for that when we have a study on it. Everybody's thinking in the back of their head there's more, than, there's more going on here than, than just this pandemic. And the answer to that is absolutely. And it has everything to do with globalism, and it has everything to do with a one-world government. And we're seeing a foreshadow of that right now. Well, chapter uh, 17 talks about worldwide religion, and then uh, chapter 18, a worldwide economic system. And uh, then there's a judgment of the beast, the false prophet. That happens when Jesus returns or cast into the lake of fire. Satan is judged he'll be put away for a thousand years uh, in the bottomless pit. And that's a whole Bible study within itself. Um, the nations that are spared, that's chapter 20, verses four through six, as they will be welcomed into the kingdom. Uh, those who rebelled during the thousand years of peace. So during the millennial reign, that's a whole Bible study, weeks within itself, there will be people born. Uh, longevity of life will be increased. The curse will be removed. The lion will lay with the lamb. And the young child will play by the cobra's den without any, any fears whatsoever. And yet they will have a free will. And they can either submit to a perfect environment with a perfect leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. God still gives them a free will. And they can choose to submit to him or not. And the reason for Satan being released after the thousand years is to give an alternative, a choice. And what blows my mind is the fact that people actually do. And um, I'm gonna probably say this many times. Um, people just say, well, I'm, 
I'm just the result of the environment I live in. And uh, I am the way that I am because of my mother <laughs> or my father. Well, in other words, I'm a bad person because I had bad influences in my society. All right, so that's the argument. And you go to a shrink and you'll, for 150 bucks an hour, or he'll say, well, let's get to the root of your problem and tell me a little bit about your parents. And he'll try to evaluate you and determine why you are the way you are. Well, now you have a perfect ruler who has never sinned, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a perfect world. You have a perfect animal kingdom living in harmony with man. You have a perfect society. And in that perfection for a thousand years, when given the choice, what does man do? He rebels. So much for the argument you're a victim of what you grew up in or your society. No. My Bible says, my heart and your heart are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Paul says, I know that in me, this in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And we think, well, there's got to be something good there somewhere. And the fact of the matter, it is. But if it's good, it's only because you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is working through you. Doesn't it say all good and perfect gifts come from above? So if there's any good that does come out from us, I hope you're quick to say, well, praise the Lord, because I know who I am. And uh, Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners. Topics in the book of Revelation. Well, uh, let me finish the last two judgments. <clears throat> then there's the lake of fire, uh, Rev- Revelation chapter 20, for those not found in the book of life, and then the great white throne judgment of the unsaved. Topics that we'll be covering in the book of Revelation, number one, the rapture. Very controversial among uh, many believers today. Number two, the temple in Israel will be discussed. Uh, Daniel's 70-week prophecies. The possibility of the... um, Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 war uh, taking place. There are those who hold that it takes place during the Great Tribulation. I I personally do not. I believe it could happen any day because the main players of the Ezekiel 38 war are Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And they are the main ones, and they're all there right now. And then... Uh, We'll be talking about the New World Order. Uh, We'll be talking about the global monetary system in 666, the Battle of Armageddon, and then, of course, the Millennial Kingdom Age. This morning, as we dive into this, the early church in the rise of anti-Semitism, and I want to spend some time with this, and I want to give credit where credit is due, This also comes from Hal Lindsey in a book that he wrote called Road to Holocaust. And he seeks to explain why the church does not take a literal view of the book of Revelation, but also how anti-Semitism plays into an understanding of the book of Revelation. So I'm quoting these paragraphs from Hal Lindsey's book, I highly recommend if you can find one, get one. And um, I'll begin by saying the, quoting Hal, the the anti-Jewish 
policies could be traced to the attitudes of the church that began in the fourth century. This was the very time when the teachings of an influential early church father named Origen of Alexandria, um, his years are 185 to 254, it began to take an effect on the church. Um, A change in a prophetic belief and it has enormous consequences. Christians today need to pay close attention to the following historical record of how good Christian leaders with erroneous prophetic views laid the theological groundwork for evil men often masquerading as Christians to justify the extermination of the Jewish race. And sadly, it also influenced many true Christians to join with the prevailing anti-Semitism. The man most responsible for changing the way the church interpreted prophecy was Origen. He was a leading teacher of theology and philosophy at the influential school of Alexandria, Egypt, at the beginning of the third century. Church historian A.H. Newman reports, Origen was the first to reduce the allegorical method of interpretation to a system. His method of scriptural interpretation was soon adopted throughout the entire church and prevailed throughout the Middle Ages. In this particular, Origen's influence was bad and only bad. It must be noted that Origen was not an evil man. In fact, he was a scholarly Christian philosopher with a courageous faith who lived a humble life. But because of his desire to harmonize the New Testament with the philosophies of Plato, uh, he powerfully introduced, taught, and spread the allegorical method of interpretation of scripture. And when I say allegorical, it means it's the opposite of taking it literally, particularly in the area of prophecy. From this seemingly harmless fact of church history evolved a system of prophetic interpretation that created the atmosphere in which Christian anti-Semitism took root and spread. Using this method of prophetic interpretation, and this is what I'm gonna say next is very, very important. Church theologians began to develop the idea that the Israelites had permanently forfeited all of their covenants by rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. This view taught that these covenants now belong to the church and that it is the only true Israel now and forever. Who is the only now and true church forever? The church, not Israel. This view also taught that the Jews will never again have a future as a divine chosen people and that the Messiah will never establish his messianic kingdom on earth and that was promised to them. By the time of Augustine, now we're going from Origen to Augustine, the famous bishop of Hippo, Origen's system of interpretation dominated the Christian scene. But it was Augustine who systemized the allegorical basic teaching into cohesive theology that would dominate the church for over 1,000 years. In other words, the 
prevailing thought was this. And I'm trying to put myself in these guys' sandals. And I'm a Bible teacher in the year 200 AD or um, Augustine in 300 to 400. What do you do with the book of Revelation? It's about Israel. Clearly says that those that are sealed are 144,000 from the tribe of, of Asher and, and Naphtali, and it just names the 12 tribes. It's a Jewish book. What do you do with it? Well, there is no Israel. Israel was dispersed, we call it the diaspora, in 70 AD, and throughout, as it says, the next thousand years, when you get to a book like Revelation, how can you teach it? There is no Israel. And Mary commented on, on her update, can a nation be born in a day? Well, it was always a small handful of people that said, I don't know. All I know is that I believe that the Bible is the word of God. Now, that's a good place for an amen. I heard one somewhere. (laughs) And that's from Genesis to Revelation. And those who have this view of the inerrancy of scripture and don't try to allegorize it or spiritualize it or explain it away with replacement theology, they say, I don't know. But if the word of God says it, then it's going to come to pass. There are some things that we're going to be studying in Daniel chapter 9 that are so mind-boggling, just so far out, that I really say far out, I guess I am from the 60s, that are so far out that it's completely mind-boggling, and unless I held to the view of the inerrancy, how, I don't care how weird it is or how unbelievable it may sound, it's going to happen. Nothing can stop it from happening. So even the reformers continued to hold most of the views, including his allegorical-based, unrefined eschatology. Now that word eschatology is simply a study of last-day things. The Roman Catholic Church, using Origen's uh, system of interpretation and Augustine's theology, soon applied and instituted the teachings that the inheritors of Israel's promises and they were the inheritors of the kingdom promised to Israel. That's why we call it replacement theology. And therefore must must take ultimately authority over the political powers of this world. So we call that replacement theology and it even influenced people like Martin Luther. But I'm gonna do a sidetrack here. And this is as new as me getting up this morning, laying in bed, thinking we're talking a lot about replacement theology, and we're going to do a sidetrack at this time. We're going to come back and talk about Martin Luther. But at this time, I'm going to ask you to go through the book of Romans chapter 11 with me, and I want to address the issue and ask the question, Is God through with Israel or not? And Paul addresses it straight out. And there's a lot of theology, and I'll probably upset some people this morning with um, um, some strong theological uh, doctrines that they hold to that I think Romans chapter 11 uh, is gonna shake that a little bit. So let's begin with the question, is God done with Israel or not? Romans 11, verse one. 
I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite and the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew? Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am alone, the only one left, and they seek my life too. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And Paul is basically saying, I'm one of them. By the way, the early church were all Jewish until a Gentile named Cornelius got saved. And the Jewish Christian church couldn't believe that God would save a Gentile. Verse six is very important. For if by grace that it is no longer of works, there's a lot of theology, Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, but it's of works that it's no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they would not hear to this very day. And David says, let their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. And let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Now this is deep stuff and I want you to think it through. Have they, they as Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? Question, Paul says, certainly not but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if the fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more for their fullness? For I speak to the Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of the flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is a reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruits is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. He's using an analogy here of a tree. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Christianity, Jesus was Jewish and the early church was Jewish. and Judaism, they came up out of Israel. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. All right, this is the whole question and the doctrine that 
prevailed through most of the last 2,000 years until 1948. Replacement theology. God is done with Israel. Paul directs it, and then he gives, you better watch yourself, church. And that's, this is who he's talking to in these verses right here. And verse 20, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, but you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, church, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Oh, this is going to ruffle some feathers, I think. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, uh, severity of God, on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness. Now here's one of the biggest words in the Bible, two letters, if. The word if. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. There's gonna be a lot of people someday who have done a lot of things in the name of Jesus. And the Lord's gonna look at them and he's going to say, depart from me because I never knew you. They're going to say, but Lord, we did this, we did this, we did this, and this, and that, and the other thing. He says, yes, but I never knew you. It also has to carry with it the idea of somebody, like in the parable of the, of the, um, um, the sower, where the seed was sown in their heart, and they believed for a while. But then the devil came and took the seed out of their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. My question to that is, were they saved during that time when the seed was planted in their heart before the devil took it away? I would have to say yes. My Bible says call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. But the fact of the matter is I know many people who don't make it past that initial stage. They get saved, they're all excited, they go home. They, honey, I met Jesus. Well, if you met Jesus and you're stopping with the partying and hanging out with our old buddies, I'm out of here. Ultimatums are given. Choices have to be made. I know people, you know people, who have walked with the Lord, knew the goodness of the Lord, and for whatever reason walked away. Oh, but they're eternally secure. No, it just tells us here this word if. If you continue, implying what? There's some who won't. And we all know people that would fit in that category. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, I need to get a little bit more sidetracked lest you misunderstand me. I myself believe in eternal security for myself. <laughs> and, but I only can give an account for myself. And I have no intentions. It doesn't mean I won't sin. It doesn't mean I won't stumble. It doesn't mean I won't fall like David. But one of the greatest passages in the Bible is if you confess your sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's a continuing act of repentance. I believe the best day of your life, you've sinned at least seven times according to the scriptures. That's on your best day, where you've sinned in either thought, word, or deed. What we have in view in verse 22 here is a person, um, I think his name is Charles Templeton, great evangelist, led thousands to the Lord during the same period of time in Canada as Billy Graham did uh, during his generation. All the thousands that he led to the Lord. At the end of his life, he wrote a book. 
and he completely rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he apologized to all those people who came forward. I don't believe James Templeton or Charles Templeton, if that's his name, um, is going to be in heaven because he walked away from it. 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He's talking about Israel. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a, a good olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own tree? The book of Revelation is God dealing with a remnant of Jewish people with the idea of bringing them, breaking them, and having them as a remnant be a part of the body of Christ. And then these verses here, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. 90% of the people that call themselves the church today are ignorant of the book of Revelation. And their place as they look at anti-Semitism in the world today. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the hardening in part has happened to Israel until, that's a big word. That means that God's gonna allow the heart to be hardened for a period of time, and then there's a until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. I believe it's a reference to the rapture. Started at Pentecost, and there comes a time when that last person, the Lord knows, the fullness of the Gentiles implies a number. And when that person gets saved, then the church will be raptured. And um, I like to kiddingly but seriously say, if you're the guy that's holding everybody up, would you get your act together and humble yourself and accept Jesus so we can go home? Especially with all that's going on. And then the next verse, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jesus said, you're not gonna see me again, Israel, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What do they do at the end of the tribulation after they've gone through all um, Um, Revelation 12 is all about the Antichrist going to destroy the woman who is Israel. That's the only card he's got to play. If Israel isn't around to say, Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, if he can destroy the Jews and there's no Jews, then there won't be anybody to call out. Does that that give you a a much greater view of, of why anti-Semitism has always been throughout history? Why the Jewish people? Well, Jesus said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who calls in the name of the Lord. They do that, and the Lord returns. And again, that's a whole Bible study that we'll have when we get to it. Now, 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. A lot of people want to apply that to the church. Now he's talking about Israel here and the promises that he made to Abraham and to David. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. 
Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. He's talking about the church. And here's a wonderful verse, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his ways past finding out. Well, the church for almost 2,000 years had it wrong. They know Israel. God's through with them. They had it wrong. And yet God had a plan. And I like this because, you know, this is, this is hard to understand. It's hard to comprehend. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. They're past finding out. Oh, the wisdom of God, that he had in view here a Gentile bride. We have pictures of it with Abraham sending his servant to find a bride for Isaac in the Old Testament. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or how has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever, amen. Now, let's get back because that was a sidetrack. And I said, even the great reformer, Martin Luther, so now we're right around the 1500s, even he was seduced and became anti-Semitic to the point, and let me just quote this, this is a track that Martin Luther wrote in 1543. It's tragic that even the great reformer, Martin Luther, was finally seduced by the anti-Jewish propaganda of his time. Although in his early ministry, Luther wrote a most sympathetic tract acknowledging the shameful way that the church had treated the Jews and urged kind treatment of them, in later life, he wrote another tract that was a complete opposite Here is part of Luther's tract written in 1543. What then shall we Christians do with these damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and their blasphemy and their cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curse, and blasphemies. This is so hard to read. We must prayerfully, how condescending, and reverently practice a merciful severity. Let me give you my honest advice. First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christianity. Second, I advise that their homes also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and their Talmudic writings in which such idolatry lies, cursings, and blasphemies are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that the rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highway be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business on the countryside since they are not lords or officials or tradesmen or the like, let them stay at home. And now the sarcasm is just too much for me. 
Well, we might well ask, what house? Since they were presumably burned in point two. Six, I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Seventh, I recommend putting a frail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, and a spindle in the hand of the young Jewish Jewish's girls and let them earn their bread in a, by the sweat of their brow. Now, anti-Semitism today. Um, I went online and I Googled this yesterday that it's once again reaching exponentially we are seeing the rise of anti-Semitism. I just typed it in. I Googled it. Anti-Semitism and the coronavirus. I got article after article after article. I'm just going to quote one title and read one paragraph. You'll get the gist. Um, They were blamed in the 1300s for the great plague um, that took place, the Black Plague. They were the scapegoats for that plague back then. This headline says, Jews are being blamed for the coronavirus. An internally circulated report prepared by the department responsible for combating anti-Semitism in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs warns that there is a stark rise in anti-Semitism publications and social media posts blaming Jewish people for the spread of the coronavirus. The report described the use of conspiracy theories that blame Jews for purposely spreading the virus globally in order for them to make money by developing a virus. So once again, it's resurfacing. I would like to close our introduction to the book of Revelation by going back to our text and with all the heavy stuff that I just read and we read... Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And some of you are thinking, Dwight, are you kidding me? Blessed? And uh, some of the atrocities that we're talking about taking place in the book of Revelation, how could you possibly uh, be blessed by reading this? And then the Lord says, for the time is near. Well, the reason is, um, the time of Jacob's trouble comes to an end when Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom. And when we read in um, oh, chapter 21 and 22, that uh, verse 24 says, in the new Jerusalem and those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. It tells us that we'll see a pure river of water of life, clearest crystal proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. And it says there will be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and his servants will serve him. And my favorite verse in the Bible, they shall see his face and his name shall be on his forehead. Blessed. First three verses as we do the introduction to the book says, blessed is he who reads the book of Revelation. 
it begins with a blessing, but then what's interesting, if you go to chapter 22, it ends with a curse. I'm looking at verse 18. So it begins with a blessing, but then there's a curse as the book concludes. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the curse or the plagues that are written in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. Here's the controversy. Oh, the book of Revelation isn't literal? Well, it sure sounds to me that the Lord says it's literal. Blessed are you if you read it, for the time of its fulfillment is at hand, and don't mess with it. Don't change it, don't add to it, don't take away from it. This is the Lord himself uh, giving this warning, and it sure sounds to me like God is serious about taking this book literally. Not allegorically, not spiritually, but exactly what it says. Much of our study in an introduction today, because much of the book is about Israel, I want to go to the very, we're in the last book, but the verse that I want you to end with this morning is in the first book. And it has to do with Israel. So we'll close, and I'm going to have you turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Picking it up, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And now this part here, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I take that to heart, and if I find out in conversation a person I've never met before, and we get around to talking, uh, if Israel comes up, they go, by the way, I'm I'm Jewish. I go, really? Well, then I'm I'm gonna love on you more than, than another person. But I have to admit to you, I'm doing it for purely selfish reasons. Because I believe Genesis 12, verse one, two, and three. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. There's an anti-Semitic attitude permeating and escalating in these last days. And I'm closing by asking, which side are you on? Are you a blesser of the Jewish people in Israel? Are you praying for the peace of Jerusalem? Or are you getting up with all the political rhetoric and the blame game that goes a lot farther than people can possibly imagine because it's demonic in nature. It's an attempt by the adversary of our soul to destroy the Jewish people. And this was attempted throughout history, especially in in our lifetime during World War II with the um, annihilation of over six million Jews uh, across Europe in the concentration camps and um, 
it's going to be better for some of those people that they never even came to life. So, which side are you on? And I hope as we go through the book of Revelation, um, as we touched on these different topics, I think you can understand why I wanted to take a morning and um, just do an introduction. Starting next week, we'll start with the first division of the book of Revelation, chapter one. So Lord, we thank you so much as we consider your heritage that your Jesus and referred to as the son of David, meaning the promises that were made to Abraham and to David, you fully intend to fulfill. And oh, the wonders and the mysteries of just how great you are and how your plan was to allow them to be blinded for a season so that you could save us. And now, Lord, as we see your day approaching, I pray that we would be encouraged and not be shocked by anything knowing that the book of Revelation lays out your purposes and your plans, what you're about to do as we're seeing these things, the beginning of these birth pains unfolding right before our eyes. So Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and I pray for those that are shut in right now that you would give them hope and remind them again we're just strangers and pilgrims passing through. And we have this glorious hope that's called the rapture. And um, as the book of Revelation ends, it says the spirit and the bride say, come, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen. It has to do with Israel. So we'll close and I'm gonna have you turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Picking it up, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And now this part here, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I take that to heart, and if I find out in conversation, a person I've never met before, and we get around to talking, uh, if Israel comes up, they go, oh, by the way, yeah, I'm Jewish. I go, really? Well, then I'm, I'm gonna love on you more than, than another person. But I have to admit to you, I'm doing it for purely selfish reasons. Because I believe Genesis 12, verse one, two, and three. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. There's an anti-Semitic attitude permeating and escalating in these last days. And I'm closing by asking, which side are you on? Are you a blesser of the Jewish people in Israel? Are you praying for the peace of Jerusalem? Are you getting up with all the political rhetoric and the blame game that goes a lot farther than people can possibly imagine because it's demonic in nature. It's an attempt by the adversary of our soul to destroy the Jewish people. And this was attempted throughout history 
especially in, in our lifetime during World War II with the um, annihilation of over six million Jews uh, across Europe in the concentration camps. And um, it's going to be better for some of those people that they never even came to life. So which side are you on? And I hope as we go through the book of Revelation, um, as we touched on these different topics, I think you can understand why I wanted to take a morning and um, just do an introduction. Starting next week, we'll start with the first division of the book of Revelation, chapter one. So Lord, we thank you so much as we consider your heritage, that your Jesus, and referred to as the son of David, meaning the promises that were made to Abraham and to David, you fully intend to fulfill. And oh, the wonders and the mysteries of just how great you are and how your plan was to allow them to be blinded for a season so that you could save us. And now, Lord, as we see your day approaching, I pray that we would be encouraged and not be shocked by anything knowing that the book of Revelation lays out your purposes and your plans, what you're about to do as we're seeing these things, the beginning of these birth pains unfolding right before our eyes. So Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and I pray for those that are shut in right now that you would give them hope and remind them again we're just strangers and pilgrims passing through. And we have this glorious hope that's called the rapture. And um, as the book of Revelation ends, it says the spirit and the bride say, come, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.